Hello. Welcome to Jane and Jesus, where my guests and I talk about all things Jane Austen, and I talk a little about Jesus. A lot of people don't know that Jane Austen was a serious Christian and that her novels have a lot to teach us about not only the Christian faith, but also general life wisdom, too. I'm your host, Karen Swallow Pryor, and on this episode, I'll be talking with Nunzio Gubatosa, a trained psychoanalyst and the Dean and Director of the Psychoanalytic Training Program at Blanton Peel Institute and Counseling Center in New York. We'll be discussing Mary Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. I think a lot of bookish people see a bit of ourselves in awkward, annoying Mary Bennett. Her character serves as a kind of cautionary example to remind us that book learning is only as good as it applies to real life. I don't think there's anyone better qualified to help us with this idea than Nunzio. Here's our conversation. Well, before we start, Nunzio, let's just talk about Mary Bennett. She is the middle child of five daughters in the Bennett family, and she's the one who probably gets the least attention in the book, yet she leaves, I think, a pretty strong impression. What do you think of Mary Bennett? Um, She's a bore. I feel sorry for her, and I don't want to be in the same room with her. Wow. Okay, that's it. I don't want to get stuck with Mary, but given who I am, I'm probably going to get stuck with Mary. She's going to le- leech on to me. And I'm going to be there for 45 minutes listening to something that I don't want to listen to. Are you saying Mary Bennett is going to be a client of yours? <laughs> well, you know what? Probably not because Mary doesn't see herself that way. She will be seeing herself probably as, you know, a very erudite young lady. And she's charmed me. And in reality, I'm like, I can't wait to get out of the room. We all have been in rooms with people like Mary. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing that's so amazing about it. It's like on another level, deeper, I feel bad for her. And I know on a a social level, it is very, very hard. At least I have found it very hard to just be very candid with someone like that. There is so much pretense Hmm. that it's hard to know what who it is that you're with. And on some level, it's also, and and this is going to sound horrible, but I'll throw it out. It's a little embarrassing too. And I know the embarrassment is for the person that they're not seeing how they're coming across. What is most embarrassing for her in the novel is the way that she tries to be the center of attention, for example, in playing the piano and singing, and she's not good at all. And her poor father has to kind of shush her off the stage after she's played a couple of songs because she doesn't realize how bad she is. And so it is embarrassing for the person and for those of us who might be watching such a person. And you mentioned pretense, and I want to ask this. Do you think that someone like Mary is pretending so well even to herself that she doesn't even know who she is. And that's what makes it even harder to be candid with someone like that, as you mentioned. I think that's a really good insight. I think most of the time they don't get it. Yeah, they don't see who they really are. There's a reason, too, for that is that it's rather scary because I think someone 
someone like the character that she's written in Mary is someone who doesn't know who they are and really has very little clue as to how to find it. They have to navigate the world in a very prescribed way in order not to hit the shoals of the world that will disturb them, the things that will call to attention, like, really, who are you? So it's a very hard place to be with someone like that. It's very difficult. Well, this raises another quality of Mary that stands out. Now, again, she's a minor character in the novel, gets mentioned just a few times and has just a few of these qualities. But one of them is that she's she's bookish. Mary is known for always having her nose in a book. But not only does she read a lot because, you know, in Jane Austen's world, let's let's be honest, Jane Austen portrays reading in a positive way. Jane Austen was a bookish character. Elizabeth is a smart character who reads a lot as well. But Mary reads so much and reading actually becomes for her kind of a substitute for engagement in real life around her. This is the part of her that I kind of relate to personally a lot. I am bookish and I do tend to think that I learn a lot about life from books. And I like to think that I can apply what I learn from life to books. But what Austin says about Mary And it's so insightful. Austin just, you know, her wit is so sharp. The novel tells us that Mary reads great books and makes extracts from them. And that's not supposed to be really a compliment. I mean, Mary is just sort of extracting the kernel or the bones without the flesh. And that's why she also, we're told, has this tendency to give sort of threadbare morality in terms of advice rather than actual wisdom when it's needed. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between experiencing life vicariously, whether it's through books or other people or movies, and really engaging in life in a way that's authentic and real? That's a big question, but I'm sure you have lots to say. But it's a great question because I think it hits at the heart of what we're looking at. And just as a self-revelation, I also tend to be rather bookish. I mean, I get teased by my my children all the time about all the books in the house. And I love to read. But there is a difference between reading and not being engaged in the world and being engaged in the world and reading. At some point, one of the things that's, I think, really interesting here is that She's not grounded with her emotional life. Everything is a very rational pursuit. The juice of life, the emotion is gone. Or not gone, she doesn't allow herself to tap into it. And this is something you do see very often with people, that they only look at life in a rational way, and the emotional piece gets cut out. And when the emotional piece gets cut out, you really can't extract the juice of anything. It doesn't sit with you. You don't really get it. I'll give you an example. And I used to tell this to students when I, when I was teaching analytic theory. You can read all the books you want on swimming, but unless you start seeing, until you start seeing a patient and interacting in that way, you're never going to know what it is really all about. And there's, there's a certain concept in analysis called countertransference, 
which is the feelings that the therapist has when they're with the patient. And a very classical way of looking at it is that unless you're aware of it, these are the kinds of things that will trip you up in an analysis or in a therapy. Unless you're aware of your own feelings, your own way of interacting in the world, those are the very things that will trip you up. But you're never going to understand it just by reading a book. You'll never understand it. The only way you understand it truly is to be in the situation. And I think this is what's going on for her. She's read all this stuff, but she's never really felt it. She doesn't know what it feels like. And for us to think that knowledge is simply a rational pursuit is just wrong. It doesn't make sense. In order for any kind of knowledge to have any depth to it, you have to feel it. You have to let your emotions into it. She doesn't do that. I have my own speculations as to why she can't do it, why she doesn't do it. And that only makes her more more sympathetic to me. Well, I want to hear that speculation in a minute, but I want to I want to point out another key passage from the novel that that illustrates what you just talked about, this lack of self-awareness on Mary's part and also the fact that she she has this knowledge she gains from books, but it really doesn't translate to real understanding in life. So so this is a passage early on when Elizabeth has just been snubbed by Mr. Darcy and everyone thinks that he is proud. And Elizabeth, who is self-aware, admits that his pride has hurt her pride. And then Mary responds with this. Pride, observed Mary, who piqued herself upon the solidity of her reflections, is a very common failing, I believe. By all that I have ever read, I am convinced that it is very common indeed, that human nature is particularly prone to it, and that there are very few of us who do not cherish a feeling of self-complacency on the score of some quality or other, real or imaginary. Vanity and pride are different things, so the words are often used synonymously. A person may be proud without being vain. Pride relates more to our opinion of ourselves vanity to what we would have others think of us. Now, this last quote from Mary is, well, the whole thing is brilliant on Austin's part because what Mary says about the difference between pride and vanity is actually true and insightful. Yeah. But she's all she's doing is repeating what she has read in books. She has no heart or emotion for what poor Elizabeth has just gone through. It's all academic to her. Absolutely. And that's, you just hit on the whole thing. Life then becomes just an academic pursuit. This would be, if you would talk to someone who was grounded, they would begin to talk to you about their own experience of being prideful and their own experiences of virtue. She can't do that. Mm. Listen to how she talks about it. One would, one, not me or I've had this, but one. She has sequestered herself from the human population. And that's on some level how she feels. She feels different. She has this, the sense I get from her is that she feels as if she were an alien observing all these things. And on some level for someone like her, it's a safe, it's safe. It's safe to do that. I'm different and I'm a little above the fray. I'm above it. So this gets into, I think, a little bit of why you think Mary is this way. So let's, let's hear that. Well, my kind of analysis is that this is someone who never felt seen. And 
the things that go on in one's life that contribute to not being seen, my sense is, is having early caregivers that don't respond to you. The examples that I see in the book are clearly her father. Her father just ignores her. It is on some level, it is heartbreaking to read those, that it is so, it is so heartbreaking to see someone clamoring for just a little bit of attention and it's not there. It is not there and you're not getting it. You're not going to get it. On some level, I see a lot of resilience in her in this way. I can't get it from you, so I'm going to look everywhere else I can, and it's all these books. Somewhere she's going to find it. Somewhere in some tome or some novel, she's going to find something that's going to reflect back to her. You're precious. You're special. When I read the passage with her playing the piano and the father cringing, it it made me cringe Mm. for her because she's so defending against not feeling loved. People love to love Mr. Bennett because Austin does a good job of of creating his character and he's funny and witty and his favorite Elizabeth. So, of course, we love Mr. Bennett. But Mr. Bennett actually is a negligent father and husband. Yes. The whole family is in the crisis that they are in because he's too busy in his library, by the way, I never noticed this until we were having this conversation, reading his books. That's, you know, he he escapes yeah. from his family and it's his negligence that really at least contributes significantly to the to the family's situation. So that's an enormously important thing to look at. It is his negligence that's done this. And yet he comes out smelling like, well, maybe not like a rose, but he comes out smelling pretty good. And she comes out as this damaged little creature that they all have to feel sorry for. Mm. But he's not done her justice as a father. I mean, again, to go back to the thing with the piano, I mean, what parent at some point when a child, you know, they make you a drawing, (laughs) a stick figure, and they bring it to you all smiles and you make a fuss over it. It's not so much that they've captured something the way a Renoir or Da Vinci would. It's because they're giving you their interpretation of the world. And they're asking you, is this, this is for you. I love you. And hopefully we make a fuss over them. That's right. You know, you said something so insightful about Mary, and that was that her sense of inadequacy and lack comes in part from never having felt seen. And that is something that is so prevalent in our world today, this need to be seen. Of course, it's a human need, but also I think it's cultivated and magnified because we live in a world in which everybody is seen and celebrities are seen and social media has us being seen. And so there's an even greater urgency for many of us behind this natural human need to be seen. And I think that it prompts a lot of unhealthy behaviors and decisions in people who are trying to meet this need of being seen, maybe in ways that aren't authentic to them or aren't in line with their 
abilities and skills, as with Mary. Mary obviously has some latent qualities and skills that perhaps aren't brought out. And so instead, she does something she's not that great at, plays the piano and sings, because in in her world, that's what women are expected to do. So do you have even just beyond the novel, are you seeing anything of this in the world today, this need to be seen and what we're doing in order to be seen? And is that healthy or can it be healthy? Well, it's interesting. What they have out there looks so perfect. There's always this well-scrubbed, well-portrayed sense of who the person is that they're looking at in their life. And it generates this sense of I'm not getting what I need. I'm not up to snuff with what's out there. They're false presentations, but nonetheless, that's what we get. I think, you know, in the beginning, it certainly, we became aware of it with the way women were, are, are portrayed in the fashion magazines and what you have to look like. But it's, it's gone viral in everything. This is what a happy life looks like. And you see people posting things that are just ridiculous on a way. It's, you know, one of the things that I'm constantly saying at times to people is like, life isn't fair. And life doesn't always give us, you know, these rosy outcomes. The only way you know happiness is if you've known sadness. It's this incredible weaving together of all these things. But that's not what we see today. Everything has to be perfect. Everything has to conform to some bizarre sense of what the world really is, which it isn't. You know, we're not, quotes entitled to things. When I hear it's not fair, it's like, yeah, the world isn't fair. But somehow we have to get through it and get what we can. And it becomes harder and harder when the things that you see, if you're a young person or even not so young anymore, if what you see is, I'm living the most extraordinary life in the world. And everyone thinks I'm wonderful. And I look perfect all the time. I suppose there's a kind of parallel between this vicarious living through social media and the images of social media and what Mary does in reading books and not really engaging in real life. They're both ways of living distant from real life, but thinking that you actually know something and are doing something. Absolutely. I think you hit it on on the head. It gives you a very false notion that I really am living. And it's like, not so much, not so much. And it's hard. There's another aspect to this that something you said earlier made me think about. And it's the way that Mary uses language when she repeats what she learns from books. And this has to do with the pretense that you talked about as well. I think that just as social media images can make us feel seen or give us an idea of what we should look like, these sort of empty cliches and terms and narratives, really, that we can take from books and adopt as our own are another way of us really not knowing who we are and knowing our stories. So again, when when Mary talks about what she's read about the difference between pride and vanity, it's all abstract. She's just repeating something that she's read, she's heard, and she believes it, but she doesn't really know it for herself because she hasn't lived it. And I think a lot of what we see in the world today, because we're so saturated with media and digital narratives, I think a lot of us, it's very hard for us to not adopt certain 
narratives or talking points that we think are genuinely our own when really they're just something we're repeated because we heard it and we really don't know it to be true or know it to be real in our lives. When we see Mary just sort of parroting a line she's read in a book, it's very similar to the kind of talking points that we see out there in social media. Absolutely on the head. And it's interesting because I've noticed with myself more and more as I get older, and I am, uh, believe me, I'm older now, I get more quiet and silent when there are things that I need to, to speak about, you know, opinions. Because one of the things I notice is that unless I really, I've really thought about it and worked it through for myself, it can be very hard to know what your real stance is on something and what you're really believing and what you're just parroting because you belong to a certain group and you feel like, well, this is what they believe in in order to be, you know, welcome in this group. This is what I need to believe. It really pays, I think, to take a little more time to think about things, which we don't do and which our culture doesn't encourage us to do. You're supposed to know right away. You're supposed to have an opinion right away. And it really is not helpful. And I find for myself, when I've done that, when I've been seduced into like, well, I, you know, after all, I I have these degrees and everyone says I'm smart, so I got to have an idea. And I say something and then I realize later, it's like, I don't know. I don't know if that's really true. So... You know, then you got to suffer with, well, like if you're so smart, how come you don't know? And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, because maybe I'm not all that smart and because maybe life is a lot more complicated than we make it out to be. And I think that is, for me anyway, that's been one of the big things is that life is a hell of a lot more complicated than than we say, than what the media tells us or what's out there. It's not that simple. It really isn't. But we don't take the time to really to really plow through things. I think this brings us um, back to a really basic biblical truth. It's in the Old Testament, but I know Christians talk about this a lot, and it's from the book of Jeremiah that says, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This idea that we cannot know our own heart goes back in helpful ways, I think, to to Mary, who, who lacks self-awareness, who lacks knowledge of herself and therefore lacks knowledge about how to engage in life. But again, Austin's brilliance is that it turns out that Elizabeth has the same problem. I mean, a key turning point in the novel is when Elizabeth gets a letter from Darcy and and learns, you know, the real story (laughs) behind many of the things. And she says that she did not know herself. And so even our heroine, whom we admire and love and want to emulate in the novel, turns out to be like Mary in a more nuanced way. This idea that we really can't know ourselves, I think, is is a crucial human truth that the novel reveals and also is probably one that you deal with every day in, in your practice. I thank you for that, because I think so much of these of this wisdom is in is there that we just don't look at anymore. We don't know ourselves. I'm not sure if it was Freud or Jung who said that basically we are strangers unto ourselves. We think we know who we are, 
And with as much time and effort and work that you do into kind of exploring, you still come up with not knowing all the pieces of yourself. You know, whenever I hear someone, especially a colleague, say, you know, they they absolutely know the answer to this question. I'm like, wow, you are one lucky dude because that has not been my experience. I cannot tell you how many times. You know, early on, I've gone in and thought, yep, I know exactly what's going on here. And then it turns right around. And what I have found with that is it's humbling, but also comforting on some level that it's like, no, you know, it's never going to be all laid out there for you because it's so, it is so complicated. And maybe if you just let yourself sit in the here and now, and get grounded in what your feelings are, that always seems to work the best. Always seems to work the best. Now, is there a way in which reading good books like Pride and Prejudice and so many others can help us to actually know ourselves better, not in the way that Mary does in such a superficial way, but perhaps in a way in which we can gain a better understanding of ourselves and of life? Absolutely. I think These are the teachers that we need to keep dear to us and hold to us because any kind of deep reading with these classics or, and and even not classics, but it exposes us to all the different types of ways of being human that there are. And there are many. Freud used to say that he got more out of reading Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Balzac than all the science because they exposed it. They just laid it all out there, what the human condition is. And, you know, by us reading, I mean, one of the things which I think would be an incredible thing is people need to do more book clubs. Get a book and and read it and discuss it with people. You know, you're turning over the, the dirt here. You're turning things over. You're letting things aerate. I'm always amazed at the things that come out when you do that. Someone else will see something slightly different, and it helps to ground you in the here and now, and also in what the possibilities are. But reading to me is just, it is a way of connecting with all the different possibilities of being human, which is very, very, I think, very important. And I don't think we get enough of it. Yeah, this was wonderful, Nunzio. Thank you. Thank you so much. This conversation about Mary Bennett has really challenged me. Like Mary, I love reading books and I love to extract wisdom from those books. But I see in Mary the dangerous tendency we all have to put principles over people, to live life in the realm of the purely theoretical instead of the messiness of real life on the ground. The errors of Mary Bennett's ways that we saw unfold in this discussion have awakened me once again to the central and profound truth of my Christian faith, that in Jesus Christ, God became flesh and came to earth to dwell among us. God is no negligent, distant father hiding away in his library like Mr. Bennett. God is pure and perfect, yet he chose to experience the pain, sorrow, and suffering of humanity with us. 
Jane Austen's ability to offer glimpses of great theological truths through her characters is a gift. And reading and talking about great books like Pride and Prejudice together like this is a gift too. Thank you for sharing that gift with me on Jane and Jesus. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. Please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family.